0: not in Bristol (laughs) 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 take that Bristol stupid Bristol people Um, I love Bristol just kidding putting this in the podcast. <laughs> Should we go? Yes. Right, okay. Hello and welcome to episode 52 one of oh, two, w- two, two yes. 2 52 of the world famous Hedgeward'sology podcast. Currently 8.7 million listeners as of last week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um yeah, so uh My name's uh, Charles Darwin, and you are the famous Ken Ham. (laughs) Ken Ham. You've met your match, Darwin. Um, and yeah, uh, well, uh, the last two <laughs> episodes of the podcast were mostly devoted to Star Wars, but, um, uh, let's, this time we've got some, uh, I don't know. We've got <laughs> we to should talk just about rename
1: some, it the Star Wars Prodcrats and be done <laughs> with it.
0: Star <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's start as is tradition with, um, oh, I should, I should have said some, there's some follow-up basically. Okay. To the person. Who sent a message saying <laughs> you guys need to stop talking about so much stuff and just get down to the um, technical stuff? I was like, uh, I am thinking, I can't remember the person's name, sorry, but I am thinking this isn't the podcast for you, <laughs> basically. <laughs> okay, um, any? I can't think of any other follow up. Okay, Hello. news from no. the word of Darren. Yeah, news from the world of Darren. Is there any news from the word of Darren? Well, <laughs> yes, there is. I have a new book out. Uh huh. Okay, so I spent, I spent most of last year writing books, three books, four books, in you know. fact. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and uh, two of them are due to appear. Well, one, of, okay. So the first of them is out. It's called Hunting Monsters. Hunting Monsters, subtitle, subtitle, I can't remember. Cryptozoology and the <laughs> truth behind the myths or something along those lines. And uh, if you're interested in cryptozoology, if you're interested in the sort of stuff I've written about when it comes to mystery animals and our attempts to understand the mystery animal phenomenon, uh stuff I've written on Tetsu, then this book represents my current thinkings on that subject. And I'm afraid it's only available as an ebook. Now I'm not a fan of ebooks at all. They're uh, they're basically as I as, as I said on Tetsu. They they look more like badly badly formatted work word documents than books. <laughs> they don't feel like books at all. But whatever. But this <laughs> this is great. You should definitely buy it, and it's dead <laughs> cheap. It's dead cheap. It's uh, so if I go to Amazon and uh, let's go to let's go to Amazon com, which is the the international one. It is currently three dollars forty seven. Which is that's crazy cheap.
1: Yep, two thirty nine pounds.
0: Two pounds thirty nine. Mm. So that's pretty good value for money. Um, so thank you to people that have bought it already. I mean, I, to, to those who have bought it and read it and liked it, I really appreciate reviews on Amazon. They're they're helpful. If you don't like it, don't write a review because uh, it's just not <laughs> helpful at all. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, have you seen the cover? Look at the the cover's awesome. I
1: have seen the cover, yes,
0: yeah, yes, it's uh, won't say what I think it looks like, but it but it looks brilliant, yeah, um,
1: yeah, okay,
0: good, so uh, that's not that, hunting monsters,
1: right, so get the e book even though it's terrible, and what else <laughs> is news?
0: Oh yeah, so I did a monster cast, monster talk, a podcast on the book, so that will be online soon. Me talking about it with Karen Stolzno and uh, Blake Smith. Oh, cool! Uh, other news. Look at this. It's volume twenty-three of the Correspondence of Charles Darwin. <laughs> oh, riveting, riveting, Darren. Yeah, is it okay?
1: Volume yes, twenty-three. It's great.
0: Yeah, so it covers it covers eight, 1875 <laughs> part of this grand Cambridge University Press project to uh yeah, like, you know, have all of Darwin's uh correspondence published. And there's these biographical things at the start which tell you about, you know, what he was up to at the time. He spent okay. most of 1875 devoted to carnivorous insects. But really interesting thing about Charles Darwin is he went through various stages of his life, his later years, where uh, post-Origin, where he really hated the things he worked on. And all he does is complain about them. He's like, oh, I'm so sick of carnivorous plants. They're so boring. I can't believe I've got to redo this book again. They make me so ill. They make me so ill. I wish I could commit suicide. And I'm, I'm... Being silly and childish but that's almost literally what he said he would say those things about a lot of things he worked on and how they would make him ill just thinking about them but anyway listen to okay how 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 heavy is this book on the darren book thumping scale
1: yeah it sounds like usually it sounds like a bit of a slap but it's Uh. a it's a hefty book so is that all his writing or like there's a little bit of other writing or is there a substantial amount of interpretive writing in that
0: Well, it's correspondence, so it's mostly, it's letters, it's to and fro Yeah, but I'm asking
1: whether there's chapters about what he was doing or anything at the time, or it's just his correspondence. correspondence. My God, that man wrote
0: a lot. Well, that's crazy, isn't it? But but think about it, it's no different from, I mean, I write this many emails easily in a year, we just don't keep them. Because a lot of them are quite short. They're like, Yeah, I got your letter. Thanks very much. I agree with you. Send me some more send me some more things to work on and oh that book you did is great. Bye. Mm-hmm. It's stuff like that. It's still but, a lot. It's still a lot, but in order to be on top of as many things as he was, I mean he 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 had, you know, enormous numbers of correspondence about all manner of different things. The, the, at the start of each one of these books there is a biography of the time, you know, what what he got up to in the time that the correspondence covers so yeah i think these are really interesting very interested in charles darwin looking forward to going to i'm going to down house later in the year actually so okay okay Uh, now what oh yeah news from the world of news news what do you want to talk about here
1: i don't know because i haven't paid attention to anything at all
0: okay you've got some
1: sort of cow or something you want to talk about some sort of
0: cow rusin this is new Paper published by Haley O'Brien and is it O'Brien or O'Brien? Sorry, uh, and colleagues. It's O'Brien. <laughs> it's got an e in it. Brian. O'Brien. O'Brien. Um, unexpected convergent evolution of nasal domes between Pleistocene bovids and Cretaceous hadrosaur dinosaurs. And uh, Rusingorix. It's from. Uh, is, is Rusing Island, Rusinga Island, Kenya, Lake Pleistocene bovid. So this is a, a wildebeest-like animal, and it has this big, inflated kind of nasal dome, kind of forehead region, really, and it's got um, yeah convoluted nasal passages. And O'Brien et al uh, propose that these are used in uh, making unusual, like resonating calls. Uh, so with vocalizations, and they compare it, the dome-like nasal crests, of uh, specifically carithiosaurine, lambiosaurine, hadrosaurs. So this is, yeah, really weird and really interesting, and uh, one of those things I'm not sure you would predict. I mean, to, to be fair, the convergence is fairly loose. I mean, the, the fact that they have to describe the condition in Rusingorex as a nasal dome, I mean, bear in mind, it's not really nosal, it's kind of more forehead, sort of literally between and a, well, it's, it's it's above and in front of the eyes. The, this group of bovids, is it an al-salafine? It's like a member of the, the wildebeest group, I think. Um, I think that's right. These animals have got really weird kind of downturned faces anyway. Relative yeah. to the long axis, of the brain case, the face is actually downturned. So the whole shape of the skull is weird. But, yeah, it's nothing like, a, yeah, like a, a hollow hadrosaur crest. So I think the convergence is loose, but nevertheless, it's still, you know, enough for you to think that it is convergence. It, it, they, have, they have done a sort of similar thing with similar structures, I guess. So, yeah, yeah, pretty cool. And uh, the person. The already been much discussed online. I think uh, Brian sweetick did an article about it, and one of those things, you know, lots. Why am I even talking about it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> one of those things. Everyone picks up and writes about it. Writes about it already. Mm.
1: Like, yeah, so, you're I'm breaking your rule. You shouldn't. You shouldn't even be talking about it.
0: Yeah. What am I doing? I do, yeah. But I do find it exciting. It's like it would be. It would be remiss to not mention it. So, uh, and there's loads of other stuff to discuss. But we yeah. Just, well,
1: yeah. We've got some cash for questions.
0: This is a short podcast. We're trying to keep it short. So let's just move yeah, on
1: to... Considering the last one was an hour and 50 minutes long. Yes. Okay. So uh, should we do some cash for questions? Slets. Yep. Sl- slets. Right. Sl- <laughs> this one's yep. from Kai Casper. Okay. What assumption is currently favoured... When the time and place of Zenarthran origins is discussed, considering dubious teeth from Antarctica and claimed finds from the Old World.
0: I'm just responding to an email.
1: Right, just quickly look at that up.
0: (laughs) Me? No, no, no. uh, no, Dave Dave Unwin's email just came in. Um, Okay, thank you, (laughs) Kai, for the. uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's great great podcasting, (laughs) Karen. So, so when I've written about Zynastra... you know, we're uh, taking the wrong angle on this. Who cares what I think? I was going to say that that yeah, the, the the dubious teeth from Antarctica, in the most recent, um, uh, what do you call it when you think about something? In the most recent consideration of those Zinastra, of those teeth from Antarctica, they have been identified uh, as um, indeterminate placental teeth. Uh, there's a there's a paper by I think. Uh, Ross McPherson and colleagues, I think, where they said that no, this claim of them being not, because they weren't identified just as Xenatharine teeth, they were identified as sloth teeth, sloth teeth from Antarctica. Uh, no, the thinking now is that they're not Xenatharine teeth, they're not Sloth teeth, they're not Xenatharine teeth, they're from some indeterminate placenta where they're nothing to do with zinathrins. Um And the old world things, um, the, it's Ananodon from China, And there's, uh, uh, is it called Eurotamandua? It's an alleged anteater from um, the Messel locality in Germany. None of these things are astrans either. A nanodon, we're not entirely sure what it is. It may have some affinities with uh, pangolins and kin. And Eurotamandua, originally published as a European anteater, is not an anteater and is not as an astran. It's a stem pangolin. So we currently have no, my knowledge... We have no synapsids from the old world at all. So, what does this leave us with? It means that synapsids at the moment are exclusively American, and for basically the whole of their history, from the Paleocene to modern times, they're South American. And then obviously they get into North America um, on several different occasions, as we've we've discussed before. There's a, there's we did an episode. I can't remember which one it was. You remember we did when we were talking about Gabby, the Great American Biotic Interchange, mm-hmm. and we yeah. spoke about the fact that um, new discoveries are making people think that the faunal exchange from North and South America wasn't all to do with the opening of the um, Panamanian isthmus and animals using the land bridge. We're now thinking that it was... More complex than that, and animals were using other land bridges and uh, and making short sea crossings and stuff all the way back into the Miocene because there's animals that are doing this, moving north and south in the Miocene, including sloths. So there are two sloths in particular that are in North America in the late Miocene. So they've obviously moved somehow from South America to North America. Short sea crossings using land bridges that are no longer – that, that, that weren't suspected to exist beforehand so uh, so this inter- this interchanges <clears throat> excuse me edit that out <laughs> this interchange is more complex than than thought before, but bottom line is yeah Zinhartans are currently exclusively South American so far as we know well what else do I need to say in view of kai 's question what assumption is currently favored yeah, so the assumption is that uh, <sighs> I'm just trying to think how this would fit in terms of Gondwanan fragmentation because we their the ghost lineage probably does go back to a time when um uh, we certainly should we would have expected that the would have originated when South America was in contact with various of the other Gondwanan continents certainly with Antarctica and via Antarctica probably to Australasia as well um so maybe we should expect there to be stems in Arthans, um in Antarctica, but we don't have any evidence for that. So I think I would say we might expect that, but we can't go any further with right now.
1: Mm. Okay then. Well, I, <laughs> I think that's answered, isn't it? Um, I think so. Obviously, like a lot of these things, it's got like a lot of these mammal clades basing something on a single tooth or whatever isn't go- is always going to be pretty shaky, right? So yeah. Alright. Let's do another question then. Uh yep. this is from Devin Myers. Okay, he says this is less of a question and more of a topic of discussion. What the heck is a Shanosaurus? I've always assumed the idea it was a therizinosaur was a fringe hypothesis, but based on what I've read it's actually looking pretty likely. Is it possible we've been premature and all the supposes of tapomorphies don't indicate anything at all? We all know that taxa classified on dental characters can be very, very misleading. So,
0: Ishanosaurus. Ishanosaurus. This is a uh, uh, lower Jurassic Chinese Zeriscian dinosaur based on a segment of lower jaw with some teeth in it. And originally published, um, I wouldn't like to has. Well, I would like to hazard a I can hazard a guess that it's something like I'm going to say 1997 ish. Right, that could be well wrong. You check that out. Um, and it was originally published as a therizinosaur, so as a small therizinosaur because this chunk of jaw is really small, a couple of centimeters long, I think, like four or five centimeters long, and. If it's a lower Jurassic therizinosaur, then it pulls most of maniraptoran evolution. You know, now we now agree that th- that are maniraptoran ceratosaurian theropods. So it would pull the evolution of maniraptors back into the Lower Jurassic. Which, bear in mind, we've got obviously we have an animal that's probably a member of the bird lineage, Archaeopteryx, and a few other animals as well. Now, but let's forget about the new the new ones, and, and so on. Forget about those. Even with even back then, we we know that the Archaeopteryx is in the Middle Jurassic, based on where birds are. Birds are are a younger clade in terms of like the divergent dates. They're younger than uh, lineages like oviraptorosaurs and therizinosaur. So we should we would still have expected at the time that Therazenosaurs and other maniraptoran lineages had diverged during or prior to the Middle Jurassic. So you could say that a Lower Jurassic maniraptoran non-bird maniraptoran isn't really a big deal it's only like in quotes only going to be 10 20 30 million years older than when you would when we would have predicted them to have occurred anyway so is it radically inconsistent i'm not sure that it is but nevertheless it was seen as oh wow this 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 shows that divergences within within Manuraptor had occurred in the lower jurassic yeah. And based as as Devin says in in the comment there, um, yeah, based only on a lower jaw with some teeth. Are you sure that it's a therizinosaur? Because I think it's from the Lower Lufeng Formation, which is famous for yielding large numbers of a sauropodomorph called Lufengosaurus. And of course, there's this historical controversy. Our, um, our, you know people have suggested in the past even that therizinosaurs might not even be theropod. Maybe they're actually sauropodomorphs related to the things we used to call prosauropods. Nobody thinks that's right anymore. We've got convincing evidence against that idea. But, that, yep. but back then, you could that was still on the cards, potentially. So some people say, well, hold on, this lower jaw, is it, could it be a sauropodomorph? And that was then argued. I, I think Paul Barrett, British dinosaur expert Paul Barrett, published an article saying that the that, that Ishanosaurus met... Or am I... Oh, I just checked. This. So is it that he said no? It's not sauropodomorph. It does indeed appear to be a therizinosaur. He did.
1: That's what he said. He said it's not a. Th- he thought he said that it does appear to be a therizinosaur, or that the characters right. are consistent with that, not consistent with a okay. sauropodomorph. This is interesting, though, because I don't know why, and I because uh, it feels irrational. But I just know this thing's going to turn out to be a sauropod See <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a goddamn so- prosauropod. Of course it is. Look at it. Look at it. It's a prosauropod. There might be... And I wonder whether... I think it's probably below the threshold of where cladistic characters are giving you very useful information, right? So maybe it's... Yeah. So I, I guess the reason I think that is because I feel like the um, stratigraphic... Information It's giving you more than the cladistic information will in this case, right? That where it's found, when it's found, is going to trump f- six dental jaw characters. Mm. And I guess that's why I, I feel like it's more likely to be a sauropodomorph than a therizinosaur. Because it sounds irrational, but I I don't think it is. I think there's more going on here, and I think that's because, you know, if you had more of this thing, you had a whole skull, or you had some other bones, part of the hand or something, I mean, yeah, okay, but just six or seven dental and mandible characters? mm, No, I don't think that's good enough. But then, this is a interesting point because then what do you say it is? Because it does according to the characters fall out as a therizinosaur um, what What do we say about it? Because there's no um, way of neatly incorporating other evidence like stratigraphic evidence, right?
0: Mm-hmm. To well there say- is a technique There is te- people do use um, a technique called is it stratophonetics or something? Where they yeah. combine stratigraphic data with with like morphological or molecular mm. characters? So to, so, and some people say that's completely philosophically indefensible and should never be done. Mm. Whereas other people use an argument similar to what you've just said and say, well, actually, no, that's not date. You know, chronostratigraphic data isn't something that we should just exclude as irrelevant. It does carry weight because organisms aren't all existing forever they do have limits and i would certainly say that it's suspicious that if this is a therizinosaur that it's known from a fragment that it's known from a segment of the body that we can't definitely say is anything unique to therizinosaurs. you don't have anything like a characteristic you know a foot or a hand or a vertebra something you can be a vertebra something you can say is more uh, confidently identified and we don't have any additional um yeah specimens that that confirm that back up this identification at the moment so and nor do we have members of other lineages that are known from that time so far all of the claimed pre-middle jurassic maniraptorans have all turned out to be bogus or something else uh, there's there's a handful of them there's there's you know protoavis yeah no, that's and mess and,
1: yeah.
0: sh- and Shuvosaurus, which uh, is well, no was never said to be a Man rapture, and it was said to be an, an ostrich dinosaur, not a mimosaur But uh, yeah, but yeah, now Fair now appears to not even be a dinosaur; appears yeah. to be some some weird rauisuchian type croc line archosaur. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I, th- I, th- and I think that those things. I think, as a, as I was saying at the start, on the one hand, I would not. Fall off my chair with surprise if if there is a lower Jurassic therizinosaur. I do think that's completely consistent with mainstream understanding of the shape of the tree, but I would say that this bulk of circumstantial evidence argues against it being a therizinosaur and is more consistent with it being a misidentified prosauropod. Yeah, the sauropodomorph, non sauropod sauropodomorph.
1: I guess the other thing is, would we expect all these characters that identify it as a therizinosaur to be present in a very basal? Therizinosaur, right?
0: Mm, uh,
1: yeah, have, yeah. I'm sure this is covered in the papers, but uh, so you'd have to read that. But um, Because you wouldn't actually expect them all to be there if this is derived Therizinosaur characters. It would be suspicious if there was a derived, something with all the derived characters that early, that early, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. As, as someone who's, uh, you know, published several papers that, that, that have been mm-hmm. uh, devoted to the... This, Description and interpretation of really scrappy specimens, which then turn out to be not what you said they were. There is, of course, you know, we talk about this in Vertebrate paleontology a lot, there is this danger in, in putting precise identifications on specimens that are just, you, where, you know, there's ramp, rampant convergence regarding certain bits of the vertebrate, the dinosaur skeleton, and you will get things wrong. You'll get things wrong as regards isolated teeth, bits of jaws, individual vertebrae, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I do think there's sort of a a danger in going too far in saying you can identify these things with precision. And um we never learn the lesson, of course, because as soon as we do find an interesting fragment, it's like, wow, that looks just like a tyrannosaur, but it's from the, you know, early Jurassic or whatever, you know, we're never gonna stop doing that. But um but yeah, I think it's right to be absolutely skeptical and almost I don't want to say it's a waste of time, but <laughs> but it's <laughs> Probably best to put those sorts of fossils aside that I'm being at work on the better stuff
1: yeah um, but I guess the argument is that some some of these things are quite interesting right they're unusual in some respect if you don't say hey this is something weird and then give it a name yeah um, then it's there's a good chance that no one will ever look at it again or think about it ever
0: again which which is an argument that that can be made in justification of yeah publishing papers on scrappy specimens or even naming scrappy specimens and some things
1: yeah turn out to be significant later once we understand what we're looking at right yeah and so it would be a shame to lose that stuff just because yeah uh, i don't know
0: so the the reason that that this, this specimen is discussed and there are subsequent papers published on it is because that first one that first one makes the claim and once it's there in the literature. Well, I forget if we've discussed this on the podcast, but I've certainly discussed this, you know, in print, textbooks, and elsewhere. Um, there's two. There's there's opposing schools of thought on what you should do when something is published that you feel is problematic. Some scientists are of the opinion that you should ignore it and not talk about it and not even think about it, and it'll go away mm-hmm. because citation adds power to it that's that's one school of thought and the other school of thought is that it's in there in the literature um novices and you know naive parties even other scientists who are you know you know uh data mining or whatever will see this paper and regard it as an important data point and so therefore it's your duty to keep the literature correct and therefore to publish a response and um i think i personally think the latter opinion is the 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 more defensible one, the fact that we should respond to things that we see as problematic but um but then where does that stop? because otherwise you're dealing with are you meant to publish a response every time someone like Dave Peters publishes something you know we gen stuff to do and struggle to find time to do what we want, let alone to deal with other people's mistakes so um but yeah this is I think it's worth knowing that both of these opinions are out there, and some people do say just ignore it, don't cite it.
1: Yeah, I think that. I mean, I think that both can work, at different for different circumstances, right? So a response to every day Peter's paper, maybe not. Maybe the first couple, right? Um,
0: which has never happened, by the way.
1: Yeah. Um, a response to a high-profile paper by you know respected researchers that get something wrong. Well, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yep. Yeah. Okay, I've just gone through my PDFs. Mm. Guess what? I am right uh-huh. I am right the very first paper published on this specimen is in Nature in July 1998 and it's titled The Oldest Celerosaurian and it's by uh, uh, Xin Zhao and Xing Zhu and they don't name it
1: mm-hmm.
0: so they and they figure that jaw uh, they they figure what then becomes the holotype of Ishanosaurus so that's what I'm thinking. So if this is in Nature, Nature as the most influential scientific publication in existence, if something gets in Nature, then that's the sort of thing where people do have a duty, or, or they certainly do feel pressure to correct things that go there, because because even people that don't, you know, people who aren't specialists, who don't know anything about dinosaurs, will have seen that, and it will be cited and, and used. In all kinds of different follow-up studies.
1: Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, high-profile papers, exactly. Yeah, but I this is an odd sort of one because what do you say? They're right in a way, aren't they? You know, the the characters do match a therizinosaur. (laughs) It's it's a tricky tricky one. I don't really know what I think about that anyway mm. we should mm. we should move on i i say i say it's pro sauropod we're not allowed to say that anymore basal sauropodomorph. what do you say it is
0: no i'm inclined to think that it's a sauropodomorph as well but but it has to be seen within this context of people saying is it plausible based on what we understand as goes the shape of the tree the timing is it mm. plausible that it could be a therazine so yes it is plausible it's not implausible and uh, this is a specimen that's been mentioned in that discussion, but but yeah, all the evidence—it would just—it would take just one good lower Jurassic manraptors to overturn this. But at the moment, the evidence is indicating a really rapid, explosive diversification of manraptors in the middle Jurassic. Uh, so, yeah. uh, a lower a lower Jurassic one is is out is out of keeping, and in, in the rest, the other fossils we have from the Jurassic, I would say,
1: mm. yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is from Irene Dels, and it's about bat-white-nose syndrome again. Mm. Well, not really. With calamities such as bat-white-nose syndrome or chytrid epidemics in amphibians, what possible remedial actions can humans take? Now, that is a good question.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for the question. Um, Anything you want to say on this? um
1: I don't, I don't know very much about epidemics and diseases in particular so no. no
0: but no but but well neither do I but I would think that a lot of the if if there's anything that we can do and you know neither John nor I nor many of our listeners are you know we're not specialists hunting down rare bats in caves or tramping to remote ravines in madagascar to look for obscure frogs okay some of our listeners are hello relevant listeners but most of us are not doing that sort of thing so um potentially our role is 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 limited but there's still i would say common sense stuff that we that we can all be aware of as goes these things and and they're similar to the sorts of things that you would think as it goes um risk of you know the, the sorts of stuff that we know anyway whenever whenever we travel. The fact that you don't take organic produce overseas, and you don't take, um, you should not do not ever take any clothing anywhere to another to another place, particularly a sensitive place, as in you know, island, um, uh, regions, Madagascar, even Australia. I guess you, you you don't go there with like soil stuck on your clothes or in your boots or anything. You don't take plants, uh, those sorts of things, because. Um, there's recommendations in the Glort and vency 's big handbook on um, uh, Madagascar amphibians. They say that if you're coming into Madagascar from anywhere else in the world, make sure you take absolutely clean field gear. Don't, um, you know, w- make sure all of your like waterproofs and your walking boots and anything like that is, are all, have all been cleaned and there's no sediment on them. No risk of, uh, well, the best you could do, minimal risk of, Say fungi or bacteria or whatever being on your clothes—that that kind of stuff. Um, well, that's something. That's something we can bear in mind. But yeah, I mean, the, the bigger—that's that's all kind of—that's very micro level, that kind of stuff. The the bigger picture is is well, it's 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 big picture stuff to do with the uh, the changing shape of the biosphere, isn't it, and the climate crisis and such. And uh, what can you do there? Well, you can expunge yourself from the gene pool so that you don't contribute to. Uh, so kill yourself, so you don't. You know, use any fossil fuels or, or or use up any of the Earth's resources. I don't know what's the best advice. To- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding. I am co- kidding. Yeah, I'm yeah, not really recommending. Yeah, yeah. To, no, so.
1: I was thinking about you know the being careful about introducing fungi and all this sort of stuff. The problem with this is that it only takes it to happen once and you're finished, right? That's it. You're done. And I just feel like that is so tricky. Is that realistic? I don't know because I I would like to talk to someone that does know more about this, but it it feels like it might just be unrealistic that we should accept that so much of this stuff is going to be spread around in the next 100, 200 years because people will move around like crazy, that, it, yeah, okay, you can be careful now, but is what, what are the chances that it will be spread at some point in the next 50 years so high that you may as well not bother? I don't know. Um, and also, the other thing is, we didn't actually cause a lot of these diseases, did we? These are not, like... They're not new. No. And therefore, the reason... But we have caused the general stress, which means that these diseases are more worrying, right? Because we're dealing yeah, with a smaller become- number of species and blah blah blah. Because you know, if we if we had the full load of frogs and bats on the planet, and one of them got wiped out by a disease, mm. well, you know, who cares, right? But because we know we're um, they're under such stress and undergoing such rapid extinction anyway, it feels um, more critical. But the answer then is to worry more about the general stress than the particular diseases, surely. Mm-hmm. As you were saying. So... Yeah. But then, of course, and I think this is... some I've, We've said this every, every time this topic comes up, I think we have to be really realistic about what the sorts of biodiversity we are going to be able to save and it's low and we're going to have to accept that um so i don't know as a as like as someone (laughs) someone in like that isn't directly involved in conservation biology you know just lives a normal life what do you if you're lucky you live in a country with a democratic government that you can vote but that's you know our power is actually really limited I just don't know what we can do about this stuff
0: yeah uh, and and democracy and politicians are becoming uh, it's, it's becoming worse given that the that there are people talking about cutting funding and to all all over the board everything involving environmental legislation and and money put aside for research and climate change and uh, so, so maybe another thing that we can do as individuals, theoretically, is is put money towards research that assists this stuff. Um, uh, but you know, that, that's that's a big, as I say, that's a theoretical thing because few of us are able to throw money anywhere. Um, I mean, w- with specifically pertaining to to, to these these issues, um, there was a. I'm trying to find. The paper, there was a paper just been published by Michael Hudson and colleagues in biological conservation. In situ, itraconazole treatment improves survival rate during an amphibian chytridiomycosis endemic. So this is, uh, I think... Funded by the Jersey Wildlife Preservation Trust, this is a study where they actually um, did some in in the field treatment for um, uh, amphibians affected by BD. Uh, the 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 so called mountain chicken Leptodactylus phalax, this big uh, frog from the from the West Indies, I think. So so pe- people are certainly working on so right okay people people are working on um yeah trying to apply uh well in situ treatments to these worrying pandemics and with this they're starting to get the glimmerings of of uh success we already know that there are some bat populations that are resistant to white nose syndrome it appears to be endemic to, we discussed this before i'm sure right. it's endemic to europe and european bats can carry it but they're not affected by it, unlike north american bats and we know that some frogs and toads have resistance to bd they have they have evolved a natural resistance and now we're finding that there are ways of treating it in the wild so um that that that. I mean, those are all cases where people are literally out there making a difference. Yeah, you know, applying funding and uh, applying research expertise. So to anyone who's really, you know, if you're really moved by this and really want to do something about it, you can get involved in that research. Um. Yeah. But <laughs> but, but uh, those those that's that's not solving the problem. That, you know, they're solving the. That's a grassroots thing for that's a. Pro- probably applicable to a couple of species. So on the one hand, it doesn't help. You know, working on mountain chicken—I hate the name—that is called mountain chicken, Leptodactylus. Working on Leptodactylus, this big frog, uh, is going to help Leptodactylus. Is it going to help frogs as a whole? Bear in mind, there's about five thousand species. Well, pessimistically, no, because there's a lot of them, and they're all going to go. A, a substantial portion are probably going to go extinct in the time we have. But on the other hand, well, you've got to start somewhere, yeah. And um, maybe, maybe establishing a proxy for one species is going to allow us to then do a lot of work on, on other stuff. You know, we know from fisheries work that stuff stuff applied to one population. It's like, well, it worked there, and it only took, like... There are cases where people have um, changed uh, regulation in terms of what people can catch, what they can exploit in, a like, one sea. And uh, within, like, 10 years the numbers of fish have like you know, they've been able to recover sufficiently. If it if it works in that that case, then apply it everywhere else. Of course they won't because they're they're all too busy making loads of money out of killing as many fish as possible. But um yeah, I think this kind of uh, I'm watching uh Deadliest Catch at the moment. God, it's depressing. Fisheries. But um yeah. Yeah, I'm sort of going off a tangent there.
1: Yeah, well, I think we've discussed this before, but a lot of it's priority. You know, if you can do something relatively cheaply, then do it, right? Yeah. So, you know, if the... You can save a frog from BD or, or whatever um, without spending millions, then, or well, even if it is millions, I don't know, figure out what the priority is, but... Then yeah, you should do it, right? If it's relatively cheap and easy, uh, why not? If you can't think of something yeah. more effectual to spend it on, um, and I guess that's the problem—we don't actually know the costs of any of these things, really, do we? Um, no. Or their effect, or their effects. So it's very <laughs> difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult to say. <clears throat> but ideally, we would be spending the money where it's where it's going to be make the biggest difference doing the research where it would make the biggest difference. Um, I don't know.
0: Um, so, yeah. So Yeah, so the basic answer is, no, nah, you can't really do much about it. <laughs> 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 well, tell more people, you know, I think the more people know about this sort of stuff, uh, well, we think we're doing some good if we tell people about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess... You know, people talk about money. You don't actually have to give that much money to charities or researchers or this to make a difference in terms of what you spend money on in your life. Um, You know, the budget for movies for the entire world would make a huge difference in conservation (laughs) biology,
0: right? Where are you going with this one? Well,
1: I'm saying if you spend the amount of money you spend on movies each year, which for most people is not that much (laughs) on giving to conservation charities, well, you know, that could make a difference. The problem is, like all these arguments, it relies on everyone else doing it, which they're not going to do. Yeah,
0: yeah, who's going to do that? I mean, yeah, very few of us. Well, we've got
1: 8 million Podcrats listeners.
0: (sighs) Yeah, but... (laughs) <laughs> uh, those of us that are in the realm of having a normal income whatever that whatever i mean but i mean yeah. people who aren't super rich is we very few people can afford to spend beyond their means can afford to spend that much on luxury stuff right we've all got to spend some luxury stuff because we're not living in, you know we're not living in north korea or whatever we want to want to go and have a good time every now and again well how many people do that more than they should i don't know if there's people, yeah. If there's your like your David Beckham's and your whatever's people with like millions of no, money, no, 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 so no, no, throw no, no, no. You've
1: been living in extreme poverty too long. No, someone spending the amount they spend on, on <laughs> movies each <laughs> year on a charity, they probably wouldn't even notice. Okay. Because movies okay, unless okay, maybe you well, that- you tend to watch movies like six thousand times. I don't know whether you do that at the theater. So maybe maybe your movie budget is relatively large compared to normal. But certainly not. No. So (laughs) I think (sighs) you know, the idea amongst people that care about this stuff, think about what you do actually spend your money on and realise that you don't give any money or, you know, the amount of money you give to charity is relatively often relatively small compared to trivial parts of your budget for other things. Right. But no one's going to. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, okay. It is true. I I have been living in extreme poverty too long because because when people talk to me about donating money to, you know, all these things that not not just not just charities, but supporting Patreon, for example, something that's something we think about a lot, both of us. It's like, yeah, but I don't have a spare £20, £10, or £5 that I can just give someone. I don't. I don't have that. I need that money for me. That's my bus there. <laughs> or that's my food money or whatever. Whereas, yeah, people that have got a lot of money, I guess, don't think about it like that. Sorry. But, so the, John the, says, but the,
1: the difference, Darren, between having no money, like you, and having <laughs> enough money to spend on Patreon or giving to wildlife charities is small, right? Because we're only talking about oh 100 quid a year yeah you wouldn't well, notice could... if you
0: a 100 quid more a year even yeah.
1: you wouldn't notice
0: even me yeah, yeah. and i give money to charity <laughs> yeah cuz i i kind of i i think this is, i think it's a thing we should do hmm. but uh, but i'm stupid because i shouldn't do it like <laughs> uh,
1: god you should spend that money on you
0: I really should yeah,
1: yeah. okay so this has gone off the rails <laughs> No, no, it hasn't been. We're still talking about the thing. mm -hmm. I think the thing is you you could, you can do is find, yeah, uh, I think realistically the the thing most people can do if you live, if you are at all wealthy as in you live in a wealthy country and you have a job, then giving money is probably the best thing you can do, right?
0: So there you go, yeah. And what? Just linking back one more thing, what I said about talking about this stuff, we can make a difference. And and an example is a plastic. Like go back, uh, probably probably only ten years ago, and you were a bit of a fringe tree-hugging nutcase if you went around telling people that they should stop using disposable plastic bags and you should stop using disposable drinking straws and we should rethink what we make tampon applicators out of. You Like, nobody cared. But now, you can't say that. Now the fact that, okay, for our international listeners, here in the UK, if you want plastic bag to put your shopping in, you now have to pay for it. Five, it's only five p, a tiny amount of money, but that has reduced the number. That's increased the amount of, um, you know, the, the number of reusable bags people are using, and they're not they're not using these um, free disposable ones, which is cutting down massively on our consumption and disposal of of plastic. and And that's the same in some other places as well. Some other countries are banned uh, plastic bags. Also, you know, there's cut- a counter
1: problem. argument to this, don't you?
0: Uh, no.
1: <laughs> yeah. That the well, amount... It's good to waste plastic. No. That the amount of resources it takes to make your average disposable bag is less than... Sorry, the, to make a reusable bag...
0: Yeah, uh, right. ...is, is so
1: big that you have to use something like 500 plastic bags... And they don't last that long. That's the argument. I'm not sure. I should look it up again. I have heard this argument made that, and people forget them all oh. the time. They don't use them. Like we've got re- reusable bags, so I go to the shop with one. No, I don't, because I just don't think of it.
0: Well, we do. And we've
1: got, it- and we've got like twenty of them. How many mm-hmm. plastic bags is that?
0: Well then, maybe like uh, people that are doing this right, okay. And I appreciate that's a minority, but but yeah. But it doesn't matter.
1: It doesn't matter whether you do it right or not. Because well, then what you, matters shouldn't, is what you shouldn't
0: be using. You shouldn't be using reusable plastic bags. Should be using hessian bags or fabric bags. But or, but
1: yeah, but lots of these things take a lot of resources to make. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I, I can see. I can see that's that that might be an issue. But from the short term, it means that. There's less plastic bags in landfill, which is because the the short fix to this is stopping the huge number of plastic bags getting into the getting into landfill, blowing away, getting into the seas, getting into beach litter. I mean, I can tell you from doing beach cleanup stuff over the last several years that the number of plastic carrier bags is has decreased substantially. Now they're mm. negligible. They're not, I'm not going to say they're absent, but now they're hardly there it was, say five years ago there were a significant portion of the beach junk. So,
1: yes, I guess what I'm saying though is that uh, so many of these things have unintended unintended consequences.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And okay, so maybe we've solved that problem, but maybe now the global carbon footprint of bags has gone up double because people are <laughs> suddenly suddenly buying a re- a reusable bag every time they go to the go to the um. Go to the shop and have forgotten their uh, the one they had at home, and they've en-
0: they end up with fifty of them, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, well, we'll we'll sort that one out eventually as well. You know, we are improving on these things <laughs> over time. But nobody. Okay, the larger point here. This, you're you're right. There is a point there, but the larger point is that that now plastic pollution is something firmly on the agenda. It's now like a mainstream thing. People talk about a lot um yeah and all the time there are these new claims about oh we need, let's these new ways to get the plastic out of the oceans virtually all of which are completely misguided and yeah, don't work at all, all. but yeah they're, they're all completely totally misunderstanding what plastic pollution in the oceans is but the point is that that wasn't a thing until a few years ago and now it's a thing because a lot of people have become aware of it and have done their bit to uh, you make documentaries about it, or talk about it online, or write articles about it, whatever. So, and to a degree, to a degree, it's the same. Slacktivism. Uh,
1: there you go, people. I don't want to say yeah. making um,
0: documentaries is slacktivism, but yeah. it's, it's certainly not. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and what whether any of this really is slacktivism is actually up for debate, anyway, because uh, slacktivism specifically relates to when you sort of, oh, I really wish that. Event X wasn't happening, so I'll share this article about it on my timeline on Facebook. Ah, yes, that's my bit. That's my bit. Whereas, like, is is that? I mean, I do take the point that people, you know, you might feel good that you've done absolutely, you've done something that's completely useless. But is it completely useless? Because a claim can be made that even doing something like that is assisting. In
1: yeah, some it's not. Way. It's not useless. You know?
0: No. Yeah. Yeah. So but the problem these,
1: these- is of course that people share all sorts of things like this and the vast majority of them are nonsense, rubbish. Yeah. They yeah. don't help anybody or anything because they're rubbish. So I think the problem with slacktivism is that most of it is pointless or <laughs> or worse, actively harmful. So if you're going to engage in slacktivism, we shouldn't call it slacktivism, but this sort of social media sharing like talking about it online um, in your personal accounts you've got a responsibility for making sure it's right and that it's worth saying su- to people do this thing or this is a real problem
0: you yeah. do have a responsibility
1: for that's... researching that and most people don't
0: yeah right. <laughs> Again, I agree in principle, but I'm struggling to think of a specific example where someone has actually suggested something that's got a negative impact rather than a positive one.
1: Well, anything that's a waste of time is negative, right?
0: Yeah. Because
1: you're grabbing people's attention with nonsense, which is attention they could spend on something which isn't. You know, nonsense in the same box too, right? So all these people, like lots of people have shared this uh, clean up the oceans with this... Big boom thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And from what I've read, it is, no, it's not going to work. And it's taking up the same attention, the same box that people would give to legitimate ideas about this stuff. So it is bad to share that stuff if you haven't researched it. You should research it. But even in that
0: case, yes, that it's based on a completely erroneous understanding of what plastic pollution in the oceans is. For those people who don't know, there have been several uh, suggestions, including one I think a crowd-funded thing did get the funding, and it was based on the making these kilometre-long booms that are supposed to collect litter. Plastic pollution in the oceans is not islands of big junk chunks of things floating on the ocean. It's tiny fragments, like millimetres wide, f- like suspended, like mm. plankton going down many metres to 10 or 20 metres. It's microscopic stuff, which is, is why it's so bad. It's ingested by organisms because thing plankton. And these claims are all to do with imagining, imagining that it's like – we've all seen photographs of you know, uh, bits of sea, like bays or whatever, that are This is huge, the problem. Big Every
1: story about this has one of these pictures that is
0: yeah. like rubbish floating on water. Right yeah and that's not that that is an issue, but that's not the issue, however, there are still a large number of people that that aren't aware of plastic pollution problem, so is it that even by uh, I don't know, I don't know on this one' I, cause, because I do kind of agree with you, I mean a lot of money and time and effort was invested in that that crowd funded boom idea, yeah, and See, one, a lot of money of main, went to that right. And one of the main objections to that was the booms are made of plastic and they're out <laughs> and they're out there in the ocean and they'll be in the time that they're meant to work, they will have broken down. They will have like flaked a billion tons of plastic into the sea. <laughs> <state. laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: this kind of thing. I mean and and I'm sure if we thought if we went through all the things people share then we'd find a lot of stuff which is a, a People are particularly bad this, bad with this, with medical stuff and uh, like really dodgy alternative therapies
0: and things like this. This stuff. Yeah, yeah. The one about the, I like this one about if you start if you feel like you're having a heart attack, then repeatedly banging yourself in the chest <laughs> while coughing. <laughs> it's like that's actually one of the worst things you could do. I think was the counter argument that. Okay, we've we've gone massively off at a tangent here. So, no,
1: well, sort of. Actually, we, that was a bit of a tangent, but it was fairly close. You can engage in slacktivism, which might be helpful, but you should make sure that it is, in fact, consi- real. It's considered to be a good thing. The thing you're yeah. advocating or saying is a problem should be real.
0: Okay. Yeah. Is there anything else we need to talk about before we stop? Because otherwise what uh, we've done is...
1: Uh, do we want to mention Tetsukon, the date?
0: <laughs> That's the thing we need to talk about. Well, yep. Uh, I forgot the date. Is it the first? Saturday, the first of October. Yep. So, bear in mind, I've already mentioned this on social media. I put it on the TezuCon Facebook page and I think I've tweeted it as well. Um, yes, we now have an official date for 2016's TezuCon. It's going to be held at the London Wetland Centre again, not in Bristol. <laughs> 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 Take that, Bristol. <laughs> Stupid Bristol people. Um, I love Bristol, just kidding. Um, yeah, Saturday, 1st of October, London Wetland Centre. Saturday, 1st of October. Yep. And for those of you who have been to TetsuCon before, we're back in the lecture theatre, which is better for lectures. Yep. Really nice big screen. A couple of interactive events. We've got a couple of speakers lined up already. And. I'm trying to. I'm. I'm. I'm arranging a little surprise, which I'll tell you about when we finish recording. Um, yeah. So Saturday, first of October, we really hope that people will come along. We have discussed in the past the idea of turning into a two-day event. We talk about that a lot, but we're still just not ready to do that because uh, we just don't have the sufficient kitty.
1: Yes, it's a, it's a considerable financial risk. Um, yeah, it's over a thousand pounds and if we don't get enough then we're on the hook for that so yeah <laughs> that's not yeah. happening until we're sure we can do it okay um right so they you can find we we write books and i illustrate books uh, so do you actually we both write and illustrate books you can find them at regular books co and also amazon if you search for darren nash you find lots of things right yeah like hundreds of books um and where do they find you on Twitter? <clears throat> at
0: I am altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. Tezu. Uh And I'm at the John Conway.
1: And what We're else both on? on
0: Patreon. Patreon. Yeah. Um, I'm at uh, patreon.com forward slash Tetzu. Thank you patrons and it so depresses me, because I'm really happy when it goes up, and then it goes down. <laughs> and John's also on Patreon. Yep.
1: Uh, it's forward slash John Conway. Uh, yeah. Uh, I am also happy when it goes up.
0: <laughs> does it go down as well?
1: It does. So a little bit sometimes. It's okay.
0: Uh, mine goes down a lot. It's really depressing. The, like, the oh,
1: general it... trend is up.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah. It's not up enough. I still have to do other work. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: I can't sit back and relax with my Patreon, Patreon earnings. No, far from it. Far from it. All right. All right. And we end there. Until next time. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, so I, yeah, don't he... ag- I don't agree. I think. He's, oh, I've, got, got I've got to get the door. got to get the door. Hold okay. on.
0: <laughs> What's that? Uh, well, it's, uh, there's two copies one for you. It's called Death on Earth Adventures in Evolution and Mortality. Dear Darren and John, just wanted to send you a short letter to say what a big fan I am of the podcast. I do a lot of driving around the country, and I would probably have died of boredom if it wasn't for the two of you. Lots of laughs, sure, but I've learned a great deal from you both. You helped me understand what stem animals actually are 10 years after I finished in academia. Also, I never really knew about the speculative world scene. Honestly, I have never really found much else out there like your show. Anyway, stop gushing, Jules. Darren, a while ago, you, or maybe it was John, mentioned about wanting to hear of projects that were kicked off with a little help from Tetsu. Yeah, I was asking people yeah. if what if they'd been inspired. C, a book about death. Death enclosed. You probably don't remember, but you offered up some advice in its early stages. I was writing about whether or not corvids might understand death. You sent me a couple of suggestions for useful books about corvids, which were really helpful. Here, have a couple of books by way of thanks. I don't think this book will make a satisfying noise when you drop on your desk <laughs> as the other books you mentioned on the podcast, but hey, right. Congrats on a great podcast, and I hope to attend at zoocon next year you mean 2017 anyway be great to clink glasses with you and john although i suspect you really get a chance to relax yours sincerely jules howard p.s the book comes out properly on the 10th of march
1: oh that's pretty funny arriving during the podcast
0: wow yeah jules howard he lives in market harborough which is in leicestershire oh how kind